But as we get into it this morning, you know, this is a really unique time of year. You know, this is a, a time where of reflection and looking forward. And so it's a time where we look back on everything that has gone down in the past year, as well as things that we look forward to, right? And especially the things we look forward to, like the New Year's resolutions. I don't know if, like, I loved how Rick said, like, if you don't believe in resolutions, like, if you don't believe in Santa Claus, like, that, that's hilarious. So I don't know if you believe in resolutions, if you do resolutions, or anything along those lines, but most people do. This is the time of year where we look back at what we've done, or what has happened, and we say, okay, I did good here. It's almost like we're grading ourselves sometimes. Like, all right, did good here, fell off these few months, and so then we take all of that and we compile it into a list of things that we want to do differently or maybe better in the new year. Um, and so that could be a lot of different things. Uh, you could have, you know, fallen off, say, in some relationships, and you're like, I, I've worked too much. I need to be with my family more. Or it could be the classic one of we all know, like, the main sponsor of, like, the New Year's Eve ball drop tonight is going to be Planet Fitness because a lot of people are going to be like, I'm going to lose that weight or I'm going to get back in shape this year. That's going to be my New Year's resolution. And Planet Fitness is like, yes, I can't wait for you to sign up and pay for 12 months and go like three times. <laughs> because I actually looked up, it was on a, an article, it was by a Fisher College of Business, is that of all the Americans that make New Year's resolutions, only 9% of them make those resolutions throughout the whole year. They actually make it to the end of the line, into December. 23 quit after the first week, 23%. So after one week, 23% of Americans say, nope, not worth it, not going to do it. And by the end of January, 43% of people have already given up on all the things they set out to do differently in the new year. And you know, and I've really reflected on this, you know, why, why do we do this? Like, why is this the common theme every year of, like, I know that I, I try to go to the gym as much as I can, and I always dread January because it's packed, Especially, I go over to Chips, and nothing against you teenagers, but there's like the most amount of middle school and high school boys that you will ever see, and they have no idea what they're doing. It's, it's just absolute chaos. And so I was like, but it's always like, oh, if we make it through January, they're not going to be here in February. And so I was like, why? Like, why is that a thing? Why, why is that so common? And something else, I did a little light digging, and by me, by light digging, I Google searched it. And this is what came up, is that according to neuroscience, um, uncertainty feels very similar to failure in our brains. And so when we're living in an uncertain time or we're trying things that are new that we're not really comfortable with, it's going to feel like we're failing, which makes it even harder to give up. And so I don't know how many of you have tried something new, hopefully every one of us, and you're like, I'm not good at this at all. Like, I am a complete failure at this. I'm never going to try this again. And there's one story in my mind that sticks out. And for those of you who are on staff and know me, I'm very excited to share this story. It's my favorite story to share, so buckle up. Um, this was back probably like 2017. My wife and I, Megan, had first started dating. Um, for those of you who don't know Megan, she grew up an Army brat, and so uh, her dad served in the, the U.S. Army. And so at the time, they were stationed up at Fort Knox, that's where they keep all the gold, maybe. My wife won't tell me what they actually keep up there. 
Um, and so, but if you don't know Fort Knox, it's this massive base. There's a lot of very important and people that, you know, know karate and stuff like that. It's just a very intimidating place. Like you drive up and there's the, the, um, the place where they keep the gold supposedly, and there's supposedly like snipers around it. There's big fences and I didn't grow up around the military. And so it was always really intimidating for me to go up there. And this time in particular was even more intimidating because it was the first time I was going to meet my, uh, for Megan's dad, my future father-in-law. Um, and so he was a full-blown colonel. He was, he is just a really bad dude, great man. Also just, I was really scared of him. And I had a lot of people telling me, you should be scared of him. I was like, okay, I will be. I'll absolutely be scared of him. Um, and Megan had told me, it's like, hey, by the way, I know you're going to meet my dad this weekend. There's a reverse sprint triathlon going on on base, and I'm going to do it with him. You don't have to do it, um, but I just wanted to let you know. I was like, great, I'm not going to do it. Absolutely not going to do anything like that. That's not my thing. So I get up there on Friday, day before the race, and I sit down and have dinner. And after dinner, uh, Mr. Eddie, he took us down to their basement of their on-base housing and it's this whole setup with a bike on this little wheel that hooks up to where he can ride in place and a TV where he could race people online. I was like, I didn't know that was a thing. And he gets Megan fitted for, his, for her bike. And then he turns around and looks at me. He's like, Jared, are you going to do the race tomorrow? And I swear, I just threw up like, yes. <laughs> I don't know where it came from. I was like, yes, yes, I'll do it. And I was like, why did I say yes? And so he fits me up with a bike. He's like, have you ever used clipping pedals? I was like, no, no, I haven't. That's an important part to the story. And so I, I had no idea. I was, I'd never have liked riding bikes. But I was like, sure, I got to impress this guy. I got to get him to like me. And so come the morning of the race, it's like 7 a.m., there's fog everywhere it's in the fall up in northern Kentucky. And it's so if you don't know what a triathlon is, normally it's a swim, a bike, and then a run. But since it was reverse, you do a run, a bike, and then a swim, and a sprint just means it's shorter. And so instead of running like a marathon and swimming the Atlantic Ocean and then biking across the mountains of France, you just run a 5K, just, just run a 5K, you bike 12 miles, and you swim 300 meters. So the race starts, we go off running, I'm doing okay, I'd never run a 5K before in my life. I'd never run over two miles in my life, ever. And so I get to the end of the run, and, you know, I, my back is seized up. I'm only 23 years old. I was like, my back shouldn't be seizing up. I was 23 at that time. I'm not 23 now. And so I'm like, oh, my gosh, this is really, really hard. And my future mother-in-law, Miss Amy, is actually here this morning. She was in the transition station. She's like, Jared, you're doing so good. You're actually doing better than I thought you would. And I was like, <laughs> I couldn't speak. And I, and I faintly remembered in that moment that, um, Mr. Eddie had told me, like, hey, just so you know, since you have never used clip-in pedals, you're going to want to keep pedaling until you clip in. And so I was like, okay, I don't know how to do that, because it was stationary when I was practicing. <laughs> and so I get up on the bike, and I, like, wobble, and I fall over, and I'm like, okay, not a big deal. I'm going to get back up. And I get back, and I fall again. I fall probably, like, four or five times. And, and my future mother-in-law just staring at me like, who is this guy that my daughter brought us to meet? What is his deal? If I, I do it enough to where an off-duty, I can only assume was a soldier, comes up to me. He's like, hey, son, do you want me to hold on to your bike while you go down and get go? 
I was like, yes. And, and so like a child, here's this grown man who I guess was acting like my dad holding the back of my bike. And it's this long driveway to get to this four-way stop in order to really start the bike. And so here I am being pushed along by a man I will thankfully never or hopefully never meet again because he saw something really horrific. And waiting for me down at the four-way stop was a sweet, probably gentleman in 70s, 80s. He was a volunteer. He didn't have to be there that morning, but he wanted to be there because he wanted to help out. And he was being a crossing guard. And I later found out he looks, looks up, and there's cars on all sides of the road. So there's, a, there's an audience. There's an audience. And you're supposed to go and take a left at the four-way stop. And he looks up, and he sees this kid shaking on his bike, and he thinks my front wheel's about to fall off, so he doesn't move. And so all of a sudden, I see just clear as day his face. And then I just run him straight over. <laughs> ran him straight over. I fall off the bike. I'm like, what have I done? I'm going to be arrested. I'm on a military base. I'm never going to see the light of day again. They're going to torture me. And no one cares about me or how I'm feeling. They rush straight to the, the volunteer, the gentleman, all the other volunteers. And I hear, are you okay? And all I hear is, nope. And they pick him up and they take him off. And I'm like sitting on the curb. I'm like, I'm never riding a bike again. I'm never riding a bike again. He ended up actually dislocating his hip. And he came up to me later. It was like, son, are you okay? I'm like, are you okay? Like, I just ran you over with a, a bicycle. He's like, I'll be fine. I was a boxer. I broke every bone in my body. And then he hops in the back of an ambulance. I never see him again. And that was the last time I have ever rode a bike because I'm terrified. I'm, I'm absolutely terrified to try that again. I see anyone on a bike like Doug when, when I hear that he's riding a bike. I'm like, wow, you're so brave. You're so brave because I could never do it because that experience has scarred me. Like, it's, it's something like when I, if I ever get on a bike again, um, which if I have to do it for my daughter, we'll see. We'll see once we, we'll get to that crossroads when we get there. But that something about that experience changed something in me where it's like, I don't really want to put myself out there in that way again. Because not only did I hurt myself, but I hurt someone else. I think that's a big part of transformation. Because if we go a little bit deeper than just something as silly as me running over someone with a bike... Like maybe one of your resolutions this year is to open yourself up. Maybe it's to try dating again, to put yourself out there. Maybe it's to reach out to that family member or friend you hadn't spoken to in years for whatever reason. Maybe you've forgotten even what it was. Or maybe it's to give this Jesus thing another chance, to give church another chance. But what makes it really, really difficult is because maybe that last relationship broke your heart. Maybe that family member said or did something to you that still feels unforgivable. You don't know if you ever want to forgive them. Or maybe the last time you were in a church, you walked away hurt, betrayed, feeling like, what something that should have been so good was not, and you're just confused, and you swore to have never walked in another church building again. I have felt all three of those ways. And probably every single one of us in here has felt that way too. And that's why sticking with resolutions and leaning into transformation is so difficult. 
because it brings all of those things back to the surface. And when we think about it, like, if we think about, like, what really causes transformation? What really causes someone to change? Or as, like, when we see the word transformation, the, the Greek word means, like, metamorphosis, like, turning from a caterpillar to a butterfly. What is the thing that does that? It's love. It's God's love that does it. And so that even gets even more difficult when we bring up love. But love is vital to this. And as we see, Paul talks about love. It's, we hear it at every wedding. It comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 13, starting at verse 1. And Paul says this. This is what he says about love and what it does. He says, If I speak in tongues of men and of angels, but have not love... I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith as to move mountains, but I don't have love, I'm nothing. If I give away all that I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, or some of your translations may say is a living sacrifice, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is what rewrites our stories. But that's only if we allow that love in. It's only if we allow God into our hearts, into our worlds. And we can spend all morning talking about what love is. We can talk about the different Greek words, if that's your kind of thing. And how like in the Bible, when you see love, it could mean like one of several different words. Which means several different things like that's where we get phileo or Philadelphia, brotherly love, or agape, unconditional love. Or we can talk about how difficult love is for us because we all have different experiences with it. For some of us, it may have some posit- bring up some positive feelings, and for others, we were burned by it. And it's really hard for us, or we didn't, maybe we didn't really see it from those who raised us. And it's hard for us to really comprehend what that is. And we hear about it, and we say, like, well, God is love, God is love, but I don't, I don't know. Or we can talk about how it's a paradox, how it's complex, how there's some parts of it that we can see, that we can feel, that we can taste, that we know is true, and then other parts of it that we don't have words for, we don't have any language for. It's hard for us to bring to light what those things mean. And I don't really necessarily want to talk about what love is, because again, we could spend hours talking about it. This morning, I want us to focus on our reaction to it. Why we react to love, particularly God's love, in the way that we do. Because I fully believe that God is knocking at the door to our hearts this morning, wanting to be invited in. And so I want us to look at what is keeping us from throwing the doors wide open. So that's what brings us to our passage this morning. And so if you have your Bibles or you have your Bible, you can go ahead and turn to John chapter 4. If you've spent any time in church, you've probably heard this passage or this story before. And reading through it, you don't really, I don't think love really shows up. Like the word love doesn't show up. But the story here is saturated in it. It's saturated in God's love. If we just want to look a little deeper. And so go ahead again, turn to John chapter 4. We're going to start at verse 1. And as I read this, especially if you don't have 
your Bibles with you, I encourage you, place yourself here in the story. So go ahead and close your eyes real quick. Take a breath. Place yourself at this well. It's in the middle of the day. And you see this woman walk up and begin talking to this man. I want you to sit there as I read this story. I'm going to start with verse 1. Now, when Jesus learned the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was baptizing and making more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied he was from his journey, was sitting there beside about in the sixth hour, because he had to pass through Samaria. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself. So did his sons and his livestock. And Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty again and have to come to draw water. And Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying that you have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one that you are now with is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped in this place. Um, or worshipped on this mountain, and you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. And the woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. I who speak to you am he. There's several things I want us to put out there before we really dive deeper into this passage. 
First, I want to point out that Jesus didn't have to go to Samaria. Like, for, for Scripture to say that, that he had to go through Samaria, that, that is a specific reason why John mentioned that. It's because, as you kind of could read through the, the text, if you've not, you're not super familiar with the passage of Jews don't do dealings with Samaritans, long story short, when Israel went away to exile and they came back, most of the land between Judah, which is like south Israel, where um, Jerusalem is, and north Israel, which is where Galilee and Nazareth, where Jesus did a lot of his ministry, is, was this group of people called Samaritans had come in and started living in their land. And on top of that, they said, hey, I know that you're supposed to be the children of Abraham, but, but we are. And so this is our land, not yours. And so it was just very, very intense. There was a lot of hatred. They didn't mingle. They didn't talk to each other. They didn't even use the same dishes as each other. Jews refused to use dishes that were used by Samaritans before them because they considered it dirty. And so the fact that Jesus would even say, give me a drink, let me use this Samaritan's water jug for me to get a drink, is a huge deal. And even more so, when Israelites or Jews were traveling back and forth out of Jerusalem, say they, like, like Jesus, lived up north in Galilee and were wanting to go to a festival or want to go visit family in Jerusalem, they didn't go straight through. They didn't take the straight route. They went around. They took the long way around. They avoided it because they were afraid they would get jumped. They would get attacked by Samaritans. Kind of like from the parable of the Good Samaritan right? Like that was the fear. And so Jesus absolutely didn't have to. In fact, he probably, because he was coming back from Jerusalem, he probably went around Samaria on his way down. But he said on his way back, I got to go through here. This is where I need to go. Because there was a well and a person that he needed to be with. And then we have the Samaritan woman, and we notice that there's something off from the start by the fact that this is, it says, some of your translations say the heat of the day. That basically means noon, the hottest part of the day in the Middle East. And so if you're going to draw water in that day and age, I mean, imagine like a giant jug. You're going to carry that giant jug. It's probably about 10, 15 pounds out of the city, up this hill. You're going to fill it with maybe like several gallons of water, and then you've got to carry it all the way back to your house, down the hill, back into the city to your house. So normally you would do that. In the morning, when it was cooler, or you do it in the evening when it was cooler. Like, who would want to carry all of that weight in the middle of the day when it was at its hottest? So it's very clear she was avoiding something or someone. She was going at a time of day where she didn't expect anyone to be there. She was trying to be by herself and isolate herself. And to her surprise, there is a strange man, a Jewish man, on top of that, sitting there waiting for her, asking her, for a drink. And that is when, this is the part that I really want us to focus on today, when it comes to our reaction to love, our reaction to God offering us his love, is right off the bat, Jesus offers this gift. And that's just something I've never noticed. I've read this story a thousand times. I've taught on it several times. I've never noticed this part until when I was preparing for this. 
But if you look at verse 10, I want us to read that again together. Jesus says, if you knew the gift, the gift of God, and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, he would have given you living water. And Jesus is basically saying, if you would know what I'm offering you, you'd be asking me for it. The shoe would be on the other foot. And so what does she do? And by living water, I mean, you've probably heard about that. We're not going to talk about it a lot this morning. But it's basically, it means like a river. And so instead of like a stagnant well where the water is just sitting there, Jesus is like, I can give you something that is for sure going to be clean. It's going to be flowing, and it's never going to run out. It's going to be endless, continue to fill you up and pour you over. And what does she do? What does she do? She does exactly what I have done a thousand times. She avoids it. She doesn't trust it. She's wary of it because of her scars, because of her experience. She doesn't know if it's true. And I confess today, reading this story, I used to really be hard on her. Used to really be hard on this one. Like, he's offering you living water. Why won't you take it? And it took me this year and all the things I've gone through this year of sitting with people in hospital rooms and having a daughter and going through a horrible, horrible loss to really see this of how much I avoid because I'm scared of pain. And so this is a natural reaction that we have with this. Because this makes her uncomfortable. Even like preparing for this, I'll confess again, I felt myself shaking just thinking about God's love and talking about it. I literally felt the same uncomfortable feeling she probably felt because of what I've experienced and what I've done in my past that has hurt myself and hurt others and makes me feel like I don't deserve it. That I don't deserve that type of love. Why should I get this if I don't deserve it? And with the Samaritan woman, like we don't know her exactly in her past. All we know is she's had five husbands. There's some scholars, conservative scholars, that will go as far to say, like, you know, it's a big deal that she was married five times. Because in that day and age, you were married at the age of 13. And that your, your dad would say, all right, this is a nice man. We're getting a lot out of this. So you're going to go marry this 20 to 30-year-old man as a 13-year-old. And so she probably didn't have a choice. And so she goes and gets married. And it's possible all these scholars say that she was infertile, which is why she was divorced. There's also a big problem of divorce during the first century of men who basically took an Old Testament law that said if you think your wife is sleeping with someone else, you can bring it to court and divorce her, and she can't say anything. It's up to the priest. And so whatever happened, it happened four times, five times, to the point where she probably doesn't trust marriage anymore. She's probably doing what she thinks is safe and just avoiding it altogether. And here is this man who is offering her something that she can't even comprehend. It's unconditional love. 
And see, what the, the thing that I saw in the story while preparing for it is that everything this woman is doing is avoiding. Everything she is doing is avoiding what's really going on. And everything Jesus is doing is stepping closer and closer and closer to revealing what is going on. And you can feel it when you really like read it in that light. You can feel how uncomfortable it is from her standpoint the, with each sentence, because with each sentence it's getting closer and closer and closer and closer to the reason that she's there in the first place. And then probably the most beautiful part is how Jesus is still there. Jesus knows everything. He already knows. He went out of his way to be there with someone that he knew everything about to offer something he knew she probably wouldn't take the first few times he offered it. And he still stuck around. Still stuck around. And so as we close this morning and get into like how can we apply this like what does this mean for us I think this story shows us very three powerful ways that God loves us and what God's love does and the first thing is that God's love illuminates what is hidden it illuminates what is hidden it reveals the truth just like if you continue reading 1 Corinthians 13 you'll read that that love does not delight in wrongdoing, but it rejoices with the truth. It rejoices with the truth. And we've heard that word of being like, what truth is. So I don't know what that word necessarily means to you. What I've come to learn what truth is over this past year is it's reality. It's what's really in front of us that, like this woman, I and many others try to avoid because of the pain it brings back up. And that's one of the that's the biggest one of the biggest hurdles right there. Is like I'm gonna avoid this because I know if I give it the light of day, I'm gonna to have to relive some things that I never want to relive again. But when God's love bursts into our lives and it brings the light to the darkest parts of ourselves, it's not there to shame us. It's not there to make us feel guilty, even though we're going to feel that way, probably. That's not its purpose. But it is to make us aware of it. Because if we're not aware of it, we can't bring it to God. If we don't know the truth, how can we live in the truth if we're not wanting to live in it? And so even though that we have fallen short, and though we have done things and had things happen to us that have hurt us and have hurt others, God still loves us and wants to be with us. That's the gospel. And Jesus, again, illuminates these things so we can be aware of them. And so second, God's love illuminates the truth. It illuminates what's hidden. God's love also embraces us where we are at. It embraces us where we are at. In other words, it's grace. It's grace. So once we become fully awake to the things that are happening in our lives, we've become fully awake to the truth, then Jesus says, don't worry about it. I got you. This is another word that I've always kind of wrestled with. I don't really 
know what it means, didn't really know what it meant. But I've come to know it at least this year is just being gentle with myself. You know, going back to like resolutions, I can be very self-critical. I have that inner critic in my head of like it, things have to go this way, exactly this way. If it doesn't go this way, I'm not trying it, not doing it. Right? My dad would always get on to me so much because in high school, I would just not write papers. I wouldn't do assignments. And he'd be like, Jared, why aren't you going to do at least half your assignment, turn it in? Uh, a 60 is better than a zero. I'm like, because it's not my best work. Like, why, why would I do it if it's not my best work? If it's not how I want it to go, right? Some of you may be thinking, you're crazy, just turn it in. And other, I see some other people out there like, yep, yep, exactly. But that's what grace is. It's laying those expectations down. Because sometimes we have very, very high expectations of ourselves that aren't attainable. They, that are not attainable. Like, maybe this woman, like, maybe she had an expectation of, like, I want to be a wife that bears children, or I want to be this, this, and this. And the truth is that she may never get to fill that role. It doesn't mean that there is not something there that God has for her. Doesn't mean that God loves her any less. Doesn't mean that God loves you or me any less. That's what grace is. It's when we receive it, it's being gentle with who we are and where we're at and knowing that we are on the way. One of my favorite authors, Scott Erickson, likes to use that phrase, on the way. It's that um, we're not just going to be stuck here where we are. We're on our way. We know the things that we need to work on, things we need to give to God. We're on our way. And so if you get anything from today, maybe take that phrase with you, that you're on your way and accept that grace from God. Because as Jesus says in the second part of the golden rule, to love others as ourselves, if we're not loving ourselves well, how are we going to love anyone else? How are we going to love anyone else? And so finally, once God's love illuminates what's hidden and we are able to embrace where we're at and accepts God's embrace where we're at, God's love moves us forward and he moves with us. God loves us too much to keep us where we are at. Loves us too much to keep us where we are at. And so Jesus walks with us each and every day if we allow him to do so. And so maybe for you, maybe that looks like, what are some things that I can do small each and every day to remind myself of that? That God loves me, that God is with me. In school right now, I just went through a spiritual formations class and we learned the prayer of examine, which is just a fancy word to say of opening ourselves up to God. It's praying like, God, I open myself up to you. Help me see through your eyes. And that can be reviewing our day. That could be at the beginning of our day. And just like preparing this sermon, that was the most uncomfortable prayer for me to do. I didn't want to do it. We had to meet with a spiritual director for one, another class. And I told him, I was like, Alan, I don't like it. I don't like this prayer of examine. And he went back to grace. He's like, how about giving yourself some grace? And so what are some things that we can do to remind us that God's love is moving forward with us? And so as we conclude, and Ben, you guys can come back up and start playing. As we conclude, I want to leave you all with this question. Will you accept that gift? Will you take a chance? Will you give Jesus a chance? 
Will, are you willing to put yourself back out there this year? Because it doesn't matter if we do or, or we don't lose those 10 pounds. It doesn't matter if we make it to Christmas this year or not. What matters is the reason behind it. Because if we just go about doing things that have not been transformed, that's just legalism. Our heart's not really in it. We're doing it because we feel like we have to do, not because we get to do it. And so going back to the story, and I'll leave you with this. The woman goes to this well because she's like, no one's going to be here. She probably had done that many days before. Gone and drawn the water, sweated her tail off and walked it back to her house. But this particular day in the mundane, God showed up. And so we're going to pray here in a moment, but you can go ahead and close your eyes. What is your well? What is the place in your life where you feel like you would expect God to move the least? The place that you go to be alone, to get away from other people? And what if Jesus is right there asking to sit with you? What would that look like? What would that look like to sit and to talk and to be real with Jesus? Say, Jesus, I want to love you, but I had a really hard year. I don't know if I can trust anyone right now. Or maybe it's Jesus, I want to love you, but I haven't talking, talked to my mom in years because of what she did. I don't know if I ever can. Friends, that is illuminating the truth. That is accepting grace and that it's beyond our control and that allows us to move forward. So let us pray this morning. God, we love you. Jesus, we love you. Pour out your living water of your Holy Spirit on us, the living water of your life. Water that from the beginning flowed out from the garden. Water that flowed out from the temple in the Old Testament. And water that flowed out when the Roman soldier pierced your side, when blood and water flowed out down from you. Water that you talk about in Revelation when new Jerusalem comes and your new creation comes and you declare all things are made new, you also declare that all who are thirsty can drink from the spring of living water. And God, that water is your love. That water is the place, the thing that will sustain us and the place where we lo truly long to be and we try a million ways to get there. And God, the only way to get there is with you. So Lord, I pray we open ourselves up to you today that we know that that stream of living water is not given to us by pieces. You don't make us jump through hoops. You don't make us check a box in order to just get a small taste. It's available from the beginning. It's available from the very beginning, God. So may we accept that this morning, no matter where we are, no matter what we've been through, because we're all in this together, Lord.
is one body with you as the head. So Jesus, we pray all of this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.